From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy our program, please rate it on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this podcast. It really helps us grow. Thanks. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Joshua Hermson. Josh is an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery here at the University of Wisconsin and one of our pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons. He did his residency here at the University of Wisconsin, and then we actually met for the first time while he was doing his fellowship at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle Children's Hospital. Surgery really is a small world. We talk about Josh's innovative research interests, including the use of 3D printing in surgical training. I spoke with Josh after he gave a Grand Rounds talk here at UW. We have a link to his talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So Dr. Hermson, welcome to the Surgery Set, and welcome back to Wisconsin. Yeah. This is this is home for you originally, right? That's correct. You probably don't remember this, but I met you in Seattle when you were a fellow and I was a, probably a third or fourth year resident. I recall. Yeah. Maybe not the details. <laughs> I remember seeing you and thinking, He's got his wedding ring tattooed on his hand, and that is like a really smart idea. And now, with my wedding wedding ring sitting at the bottom of an ocean somewhere, I'm <laughs> reminded that I really should have done that. Yeah, that's. Um, I had a similar experiences about three months after we got married, and one night I couldn't find my ring, and um, it was a cheap ring, but I'm like, I can't afford eighty dollars every three months, um, so I went to tattoo parlor on Willie Street and got it done and then subsequently it, it was it got lost in the locker room because I tied it on my scrubs or something and somebody found it and it got back to me um, and then I held on to it and it kind of put it on my wife's pillow on her first anniversary. Oh I still have hope for mine I know <laughs> what part of the ocean it's in. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your your origin story here. Because you've you've been all over, right? You started started in Wisconsin and down to South Carolina, Seattle, and now you found your way home. Yes, uh, I was born in Milwaukee um, because my parents uh, uh, conceived me before they were married, and I think they kind of got banished <laughs> from Whitewater. Oh my! For a little bit, um, and they were in school. And I think my dad quit school and took a job. When they graduated, we moved to. Uh, Minnesota for a couple of years and then lived in outside of Des Moines for a couple of years and then when I was 10 no uh, yeah when I was 10 my parents were like we're sick of winter and my dad found a job in commercial real estate which he'd been in like straight-up technology sales up until that point huh. and we moved to the Charlotte North Carolina area and he lasted about six months in that job and then got back into kind of his normal field um, so that's kind of where I grew up and then went to college and medical school in Charleston, and then, by the luck of the match, ended up back here, uh, in large part because I was pretty dead set on being an abdominal transplant surgeon. So you ended up choosing cardiac surgery over transplant. Correct. And then did your fellowship in, in Seattle. Correct. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was a two-year fellowship, and then um, I did the congenital fellowship at Seattle Children's really with the sole purpose uh, of going 
being hired back at the university in an adult practice, but with a large focus on adult congenital. Yeah. Which which this guy, uh, my mentor there, Ed Barrier, had built over his career, and he kind of needed a succession plan, um, and I was that plan, and life through another curveball. But it turns out you're Wisconsin Citadel ring, and here you are, right, right, coming back to us. So you've been back now for a little over a year? Yeah. And um, you just delivered this Grand Rounds talk about some of the work that you're doing um, that you've actually brought back back with you from Chicago. Can you, or Seattle. Seattle. Mm -hmm. I was in Chicago. It's These intersecting (laughs) paths, right? Um, Back from Seattle. and, and Dr. Barry's work there. Can you just tell us a little bit about how, about the work you're doing and, and how, how you see that impacting the health of people in Wisconsin? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the main thing I've kind of imported, if you will, is um, when I started my fellowship, uh, it kind of lined up uh, with the, that center's participation in this AHRQ grant uh, there was eight centers nationwide in, in the University of Washington. It was one of those studying the development of a simulation curriculum in cardiac surgery. And um, it uses this kind of very cool high fidelity simulator that uses a pig heart, which is pretty similar to a human heart in structure. Um, and this, this contraption that basically allows you uh, to circulate fluid through it. Um, and we cannulate these hearts and we do cabbages on these hearts and we do aortic valves on these hearts and we can simulate disaster scenarios on, with cardiopulmonary bypass and um, it's a fairly you know immersive uh, realistic high fidelity uh, simulator in a because low, in the low pressure environment right that are not in the heat of the OR um, like and it's kind of ends up being like you know some tutoring sessions uh, one-on-one with an attending that's much different tenor than you get in the operating room. Right, where a problem with the cardio bypass machine is is not the time you need to learn how to deal with a problem with the cardio bypass machine. Right. right? Yeah. So I had I had trained with the aid of that curriculum, and then I had uh, trained other people with the aid of that curriculum, and it's published free online, and, and I was familiar with it and just kind of imported it, and the department has supported uh, the capital investment to get it going, and mm-hmm. now it's um, you know it's up and running and becoming part of the curriculum here. And that's something you can use for sort of all comer cardiac surgery, right? It's like you practice the basic techniques of cardiac surgery. You've now evolved this to to doing simulation of something that's actually less easy to simulate, right? The, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, and that, um, it's a little bit, it doesn't necessarily use that system, and it's more of a static uh, model. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, through some random connections in, in Seattle, got linked up with a guy who uh, had figured out kind of a recipe to 3D print things in this hydro- hydrogel material. Hmm. that um, was a little bit more tissue-like so than like a silicone or a, a, a certainly more tissue-like than a hard plastic. Yeah. And um, it's a material that you can, it'll hold some suture, um, you know, you can cut on it, and, and the consistency is, uh, it's different than heart muscle, but it's 
close enough mm -hmm. um, to get a feel for it. And you know, really regarding the anatomy of the ventricular septum, it's it's very good in recreating that um, because that's a fairly gross structure. It's not a two millimeter coronary. It's not a you know see through valve uh, tissue. Yeah. That we just don't have the media yet to print well. Um, so, and the operation for that problem is kind of dumb. You just carve out chunks of muscle. Yeah. Um, so it's a completely resective operation as opposed to a lot of what we do, which is reconstructive. And, um, you know, on a fairly macro scale, and so I thought, why don't I use these models to actually simulate or practice the operation the day before and get a feel for how much am I going to cut out, where is it thick, where is it thin, where can I be more aggressive, where do I have to be careful. Um, and most of the 3D printing stuff, um, at least, you know, a couple years ago, it was very hard to find 3D prints that were actually being used in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, most of the experience was really as an adjunct to conventional imaging. So, um, you know, you have a tough esophageal case or a tough tumor with relation to a lot of closed structures and you 3D print it to better understand that. Yeah. But, and you may bring it to the operating room, but then it's just sitting there on the table, you know, and you can look at it as a visual reference, much as the CT scan, which is also displayed just in a different way. Yeah. Whereas I was excited to, to use it in more of a functional way. It seems very sci-fi, you know? I mean, I, a, a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago now, I was a consultant on a TV show um, where we actually were talking about doing this. You know, the writers were like, wow, it'd be so cool. They like do this 3D printed model or like they, we have a hologram or something and they can practice the operation. I was like, ah, yeah, but it's totally unrealistic. But it turns out like they, they just had their finger on the pulse of the future of, of medicine. So patients come to you with, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is where the, the muscle of the heart has gotten overly enlarged and the heart's not working well. And you say, oh, okay, it's like a simple operation. We just, you know, scoop out a bunch of muscle. But, but it is important to scoop out the right part. Correct. Right? Yeah. And to, to take a deep cut some places and not others, and it's not the same from patient to patient. Correct. Yeah, it's, um, it's truly a disease where every patient's a little different. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some patients it's amazing how little the operation really, you know, does or how, how little you have to do to make a big difference. And other patients, you know, it's, it's you know, a handful of muscle and and it still may not be enough or, or whatnot. So, um, you know, and if you talk to very experienced surgeons in this, they say, well, I've done 2,000 of these, and yeah, they're all different. And mm. It's still sometimes a challenge and, you know, still gets the, your blood pumped a little bit. Describe maybe just a little bit like the, the process. A patient has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. They, they've discovered this through their cardiologist or whatever, and they're sent to you for evaluation, what's sort of like the step from they hit the, your office door to they leave the hospital? Yeah, I mean, usually it's not a, a new diagnosis because by the time they see a surgeon, they've kind of failed the medical treatments. Okay. Uh, which are typically beta blockers and or calcium channel blockers. So it's not, this isn't a first line. So then it, then it kind of comes down to is the patient a reasonable surgical candidate? Because there is a non-invasive or less invasive option and the cardiologist can um, go and actually inject pure alcohol 
mm. into the perforating septal coronary vessels that feed the area of hypertrophy because it's usually fairly localized to the basal septum. Wow. Um, and, th and there's, you know, there's pros and cons to each, but but surgery or surgical septal reduction is pretty much universally agreed upon as the better treatment for a patient that can handle the stress of surgery. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, age is a little bit of our criteria, but it's mostly about comorbidities and frailty and how long you expect them to live. Um, so that's kind of the first step. You know, if they're a surgical candidate, um, you know, we make sure that the coronary arteries are not diseased. Um, make sure that their lung function is good and they don't have terrible carotid disease and it's a normal pre-op workup. Um, if we want to 3D print the heart, um, the best data set really for that is a high-resolution CT scan. Mm -hmm. um, and usually, uh, if we get a coronary CTA in lieu of an invasive angiogram, if they're low risk, um, that's a good data set for both of those things. So can we just talk a little bit about how CT scans have sort of quietly evolved. At least I have not been wildly aware of it. When I was in medical school, you got a CT scan when, you know, now many, many years later, like you also just get a CT scan. But the, what CT has done in that interval is really dramatic, right? I mean, it used to be like, you'd kind of go through the scanner, it would take like 30 seconds, you'd sort of pan through, and then you would get an image. Now our CT scanners are capturing an image of the heart between heartbeats, basically, right? Or like, over a course of a couple of heartbeats and able to resolve the motion to give you a picture of the heart that's not just a wildly beating yeah. blur. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, some of the cine images they can get and the spatial resolution and, the, and the, the major advantage of CT over MR is the temporal resolution. And um, yeah, it's incredible that, you know, for a normal risk patient, if the coronary CTA is negative, then they don't have coronary disease and you don't have to cath them, uh, which is, you know, a big deal. So like the CT scan shows you all of the vessels to, that yeah. feed the heart, whether yeah. they're open, whether they're closed, yeah. I mean, yeah. And if it's positive, they go on to get a cath and it's not a perfect, you know, predictor. Yeah. Uh, but it saves a lot of people getting cathed and uh, a lot of it has grown out of, uh, I think a lot of that technology and expertise is also kind of grown simultaneously out of the experience with TAVR because everybody that is up for a TAVR gets this very fancy CT scan where they measured the perimeter of the aortic annulus and the diameter and the obliquity and uh, you know really that's the gold standard now for sizing the aortic annulus where it had been echo for decades. And that gives you basically you can recreate a 3D image of the heart off the CT scan that you then send to a printer. Yeah. And how, how does that, like, how long does that process take? Is it, like, days to print this thing up, or? It probably, it takes, you know, a couple hours to do the, the what's called the segmentation process, whereas, and you can automate it in some ways, but basically every slice of the, of the CT scan, you have to trace out on that image what you want to print or your, your field of interest. So it's still, like, a manual-ish yeah, process. Yeah. software that puts your segmentation from all those slices together, and that, uh, and then there's software that tessellates it and basically turns that image into a bunch of interlocking triangles, um, which is how it gets the dimensions. And then that file, which is a, a stereolithography file or .stl file, is what gets loaded to a printer and, and then prints it in. Printing can take anywhere from a few hours to 
you know, a day or 30 hours. Yeah. And in the end, you're left with something that is the shape of the CT scan that you then take, do you just, in your office, you sort of operate on it or you take it to an OR? Like, how yeah, does that work? Um, right? I've done both. Yeah, usually an empty OR with a sim lab with an operating room table. And um, it's a little hokey, but I kind of prop it on some towels in a, in a basin and then put a chest mannequin over it. Okay. It has kind of an opening so you get the depth. Mm, and right. Can, and you can put a retractor there so you have that kind of in your way. You know what your obstacles are going to be. And yeah. It's pretty decent for recreating the, the angles and the approach that you have during surgery. And, you know, then it's really just a knife and a pickup and some scissors. And, um, and that's how it is. And the other part of it that I think has been key is I said, oh, well, how am I going to actually, like, measure this? And um, it couldn't really be weight because, you know, the weight of the specimen is, I don't know really how it lines up with the weight of the muscle, but yeah. um, I, I did some Googling in Wikipedia because I'm terrible at physics, but it seemed like liquid displacement uh, would work well and mm-hmm. it would be equivalent okay. between those two things. So I do the resection on the model and basically fill a graduated cylinder to a set amount and then measure how much the column of water goes up when I put the pieces in and yeah. I've been doing the same thing in the operating room um, and the cool thing about the model is you can you know kind of simulate it doing the resection through the aorta like you do in the aorta but then you can pick it up and flip it over and say oh I can do a lot more here and you can really get it kind of perfect uh, which it may not need to be perfect but you can kind of outline to yourself what perfection is and then in the operating room you know if you've resected three cubic centimeters and on the model you did seven you know that you can do some more safely and, and you probably have some idea where you can get that extra volume so it's um, you know it's not validated yet in any kind of way but um, it's also helped me mentally when I'm looking at the echo or the CT to, to kind of predict like okay this is going to be in the seven to eight cubic centimeter range and this mm-hmm. one's going to be three and this one's going to be twelve when you get into the OR and you open up the patient's heart that you operated on the model of their heart, and you generally do the, the operation like the day before, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. the model. Yeah. Um, do you get like a sense of deja vu? Like is it is it that sort of fidelity where you're like, oh yeah, I've been here? The main difference is, you know, the model is made with the heart in diastole, but, but the model material has its own structure and, and its support and, and it can move a little bit but doesn't relax like muscle okay or doesn't collapse like an empty ventricle Mm -hmm. that being said some of these hearts have pretty thick stiff muscles so some are a little bit closer approximation than other yeah never got a picture of this but you know i'd love to line up you know five models in a row because they're all quite different um in in the morphology of that outflow tract and um so, so there is some correlation. I mean, uh, it's not perfect. So it's not perfect, but it's enough to sort of know yeah. the landmarks of where you're going to go and yeah. what you're going to operate on. And that's awesome. What's the so obviously you're building out our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy program here. Trying to, yeah. What's the next step? I mean, there's a couple steps. One is to keep you know doing cases as they come and do a good job and communicate with the cardiologists. You know, to keep doing some outreach uh, in different places around the states. Um, you know, I think the other thing is to have some 
uh, advantage and, and I'm, I'm working with some engineers here to try to recreate this modeling uh, process here. I've, I've done it on seven hearts so far and so if I can do seven more or ten more or thirteen more then I have a paper with twenty patients uh, that will increase our visibility and, and maybe corner some patients and notoriety. Um, and I, I mean, you can imagine that this technology would be used in all sorts of operations, potentially, right? Like it doesn't need, to, this isn't the only implication for 3D printed simulation of complex conditions. Correct. And as the technology gets better and we're able to print more different kinds of structures, that's only going to expand. Do you have a sense of like what the five-year future of 3D printing is? Like, are these technologies around the corner? Like, are we going to be printing tissue, you know? Anytime soon? I have no idea. But I think that's the holy grail. Right, is to actually like print a heart out of heart tissue, right? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming by and telling us about the program that you're building. And I'm sorry for Seattle because they, they are in my heart, you know, that they they lost you. But we're, we're glad, glad to have our gold ring back here in uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, part of my heart is there, but it's good to be at home. Awesome. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Nickel of the University of Wisconsin's Division of Pediatric Surgery. We have a great conversation about rural surgery, the history of Wisconsin, and how to most effectively invest in the future of care for kids. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. And I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin